morning. I will be reading from Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 20. Now, what, I'm, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask. You will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask. Who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? No, the word is very near. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing, the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And our next scripture lesson comes from the New Testament book, 1 Timothy, chapter 6, starting with verse 6. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these but those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you were made, the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the right time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, 
but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. We join me in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, that we may see and know the life that really is life, and that we may live fully in you, this day and always. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So we're going to ask what is a very ancient question this morning. And the question is, what is the good life? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How do we know if the life we're living is really the good life? And it's an ancient question, right? It's been answered by philosophers across the ages. So I'm going to give you a little quick history of philosophy here and the history of this question. So first up, we have Socrates. Socrates kicked off this question by saying that the unexamined life is a life not worth living. He felt that if you did not reflect on your values and why you live the way you do, if you just spend your life paying the bills and going through the motions, that you were truly not living the good life. And I was thinking about Socrates' command to examine our lives as churchgoers and as Christ followers who come together to worship every week, to study the Word together, to listen to a sermon, to pray and ask for God's grace and God's guidance, there's lots of ways that we come together to examine our lives, to, to put them up against the model of Christ and ask some questions of how and why we live. So after Socrates, we move along through the Greeks to Aristotle. And his definition of the good life was a life that's lived contributing to the community so that society is just and fair and functions well. And Aristotle was not concerned so much with the happiness or contentment of any individuals. He said, just know your role and follow through with it. Well, that sounds pretty good if you're the emperor of Rome, right? Just, just live out your life and do your job. But what if you're the garbage collector in Rome, right? Well, Aristotle said, too bad. Somebody's got to do that job, and if it's your job, just do it well. Then we move along to the philosopher Nietzsche. And you know his famous line, right? Nietzsche is the philosopher who declared that God is dead. So for an atheist, what does the good life look like? Well, Nietzsche wrote that compassion was not a virtue, but a weakness. He thought that compassion makes people feel good about themselves in the short term 
and maybe even alleviates some suffering in the short term, but that it makes humans weak in the long run. Don't help your neighbor, but let them figure it out for themselves. How'd you like to live next to this guy, right? And one more. This is the Christian philosopher, Immanuel Kant. And he said the good life is when virtue and happiness coincide. And he said that virtue is the one that we can work on, that we can chase after. And he defined virtue as doing what is right rather than doing what will make us happy. That if we do what is right, the happiness would come later. And he had an interesting take on virtue. He said it comes out of self-respect. And he put it this way. Basically, if you could come to the end of each day to look back at your actions from that day and not have any regret, right? You think about all the things you said, all the things you did, and you don't regret anything from the day, then he said, you are living a virtuous life and you are on the path to living the good life. Okay, so that's what a bunch of old dead white guys think the good life looks like, right? But I guess the question is, what does the good life look like for you? If I ask you to define the good life, how would you describe it? And then, if you can define the good life, are you living the good life right now? And if you're not living the good life, then ask yourself the question, what's in the way of that for you? I think clearly, the biblical model of the good life is living a life that is connected to God and connected to our neighbor. And one of the things we have to examine is if there are any sins in our life that prevent us from doing either of those things, any sins that get in the way of us living the good life. Joshua makes it pretty simple. When the Israelites are about to enter the promised land, they've been traveling through the desert for 40 years, and they're about to enter the land flowing with milk and honey. And Joshua stands up in front of all the people and says, Choose life or choose death. What a choice, right? I mean, which one would you pick? Life or death? It sounds so simple, right? Of course the people chose life. Who would choose death? And yet, sometimes I wonder if we do it every day without quite realizing it. When we make the choice to choose revenge instead of forgiveness, when we choose destruction instead of creation, when we choose isolation instead of community, when we choose to nurse that grudge instead of asking to reconcile, when we choose silence instead of speaking out, or any time we choose the cheap and easy path versus the hard and more costly one, Well, Joshua presents the people with the choice of life or death. 
But Jesus speaks of a different kind of life. When he talks to his disciples, he speaks of the eternal life. And in the letter that Paul writes to Timothy, he encourages the young man to choose this eternal life. So in reading this passage, what does the good life look like to you? Here's a few things I think are markers of the good life. The good life is gentle. Some have said that we live right now in the age of outrage, right? The age of cable news, the age of social media, where everybody is angry all the time. And the primary method of communication is, is vitriol and bluster, right? People want to have the witty comeback or the cutting soundbite. What if we were a people who lived gently in this age of outrage? What if we started to value the quiet and the gentle voice rather than the loudest one in the room? The good life is gentle. And the good life is also simple. I went down the hill to check out the new Starbucks this past week. I met with a friend there, and I stood looking up at the menu board. I couldn't make heads or tails of it, right? So many kinds of coffee, hot coffee, cold coffee, in a million different varieties. In fact, I was curious, so I googled it, and Starbucks says officially that there are 87,000 different combinations for coffee. If you take their core beverages and multiply them by the modifiers and customization options. That's according to Lisa Pass, a Starbucks spokesperson. Well, I looked at those 87,000 possibilities up on the board and decided for a cup of coffee with cream and sugar in it. I think the good life is a simple life, right? Paul tells Timothy to cultivate contentment, to be happy with what we have. Because you know there's always something better out there. There's always something newer, something faster. And chasing after that gets tiring. A lot of our consumption is driven by fear. I was reading a passage by the writer Matt Haig this week, and he says, happiness is not good for the economy. If we were happy with what we had, why would we need more? Think about how different things are sold to you and how fear is one of the ways to twist us into buying something or spending some money. How do you sell anti-aging face moisturizer, right? You make women afraid of wrinkles. How do you get people to buy insurance? You make them afraid that their she shed will burn down, right? <laughs> Have you noticed the new billboards for plastic surgery that are along Interstate 83 on the South Bridge? They make you fear your bikini body. 
How do you get people to watch a TV program? You make them worry that they might miss out. Fear drives us to consume more. Happiness isn't good for the economy, says Matt Haig. And then he ran, ends uh, the passage that I was reading with this phrase, which has challenged me all week. He said, It is a revolutionary act to be happy with your own non-upgraded existence. My own non-upgraded existence. What a challenge, huh? The good life is gentle. The good life is simple. And the good life leads to justice. Or as Paul says it in his letter, fight the good fight of faith. And the good fight is not the fight against the competition, that, that fight to be better than the other. But the good fight is the fight against ourselves, against our own sinful nature that weighs us down. He talks a lot about wealth and status in this part of the letter to Timothy. And when we focus on wealth and status and all that comes with those things, we tend to overlook suffering and injustice. I'll show you a picture now. It's just the entry driveway, but uh, this is the home of former president James Monroe. It's called the Highlands down in Virginia. It's a beautiful, sprawling uh, plantation estate. And you can rent it for weddings or corporate outings and, and have a very beautiful setting for your meeting or for your wedding. But you can also go there and take a tour. And at James Monroe's house, there's a very special tour you can take. See, because the fifth president of the United States owned 49 slaves. 49 persons in bondage owned by the President of the United States who helped to build this huge estate, who then lived there and staffed it as slaves did on plantations. Well, I heard the story of one of the slave educators who gives that tour, and he's actually a descendant of one of those 49 enslaved people. And he said he took a tour group out, and he took them around the property telling the stories of how the slaves lived and how they were treated and how they were owned. And two of his guests, a pair of ladies that had come on the tour, got very upset as the tour went on and went on. And by the end, they chewed him out and said, we wanted to see this beautiful house and this beautiful property. And you've just taken us around and showed us all the dark places. How often we notice the mansion with the big pillars, but fail to see the, the slave cabins down in the woods. Paul tells us that the good life comes with a combination of godliness and contentment. And he has a lot of warnings about not chasing after more money. Paul warns very strictly against the love of money and the eagerness to be rich. 
I think that's fascinating that even in biblical times, Paul is warning against the the get-rich-quick mentality, right? And what's being critiqued is not money or what we have, but our orientation toward it, our attitudes and our heart toward income and the wealth that we've accumulated. If our time and our attention and our hearts are always pointed toward getting more or getting that next upgrade, then are we really living the life that leads to life? One way to ask about living the good life is to think about your calendar. And here's something I noticed this week. Uh, Brookie and I share a Google calendar. It's nice for coordinating all the family stuff and all the church stuff. So I have a color. The kids have a color. The church has a color. Brookie's work has a color. And this whole rainbow gets spilled out across the pages of our calendar day by day. But I recognize something, that in that, I can just at a glance tell how much I'm working, how much time I'm spending with family, where my time and attention will be spent over the next seven days. And just by the colors I see, I can start to answer the question if I'm spending my time in ways that will lead me toward the life that truly is life. And then, think about this one. I was wondering if my bank would start color-coding my credit card statement, you know? I'm not sure exactly which categories I would need to have, but what if I could just glance down at that? It's another way to tell me if I'm leading a life that leads toward life. What if following Jesus means we need to audit our time and audit our finances? The good life has one more component. I think Nietzsche was totally wrong. The good life includes a component of serving others. That's why we're getting ready to to leave the building next week, right? As the founder of Methodism said, a good faith needs to hold together two things, acts of piety and acts of mercy. Acts of piety are are things that help us grow closer to God. Study and prayer and worship together. And acts of mercy are acts of service, to, to care for the poor and to lift up the broken. Here's what he wrote in one of his sermons. Whether we think of or speak to God, whether we act or suffer for Him, all is prayer. All that a Christian does even in eating and sleeping, is prayer when it is done in simplicity, according to the order of God. And so I ask you one more time, think about your calendar. Think about your checkbook, your credit card statement. Think about your life in its entirety. Are you living the good life? And I'll leave you with Paul's instruction one more time. He wrote to Timothy these words. Teach them to do good, 
Be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. Thanks be to God for the invitation in Christ to live the life that really is life. Amen.